0: I'm Damian Bolwa. Today on Fifth Admission, San Francisco Mayor London Breed's 90-day state of emergency in the Tenderloin expires today, Thursday. So what did the mayor actually do, and did it make a difference? Did the state of emergency change a neighborhood that has shouldered so many of the city's most critical problems, including widespread homelessness and a drug epidemic that has killed more than 1,300 people in the past two years alone? My guest on the show today is Chronicle reporter Susie Nielsen. She's been following the city's efforts in the Tenderloin. She's also been trying to measure those efforts. I want to ask her about Mayor Breed's statement that the city might arrest some people that are using drugs out in the open, and about the city's decision to allow drug use in a newly opened city aid center. But first, Susie, thanks for joining us. What exactly was Mayor Breed's emergency order?
1: So in late December, Mayor Breed enacted a state of emergency in the Tenderloin neighborhood, which is a process that allows cities to quickly and efficiently funnel uh, funding and resources towards problems. And so this emergency order lasted 90 days, and it was an attempt to improve conditions in the Tenderloin, which many folks know as... Uh, sort of a containment zone for some of San Francisco's most intractable problems, especially homelessness and drug use and specifically drug overdoses. As you know, you know, the fentanyl crisis has killed over a thousand people in the last two years. um, And many of those deaths have been occurring in the Tenderloin. So the emergency order did a few things. It basically funneled city, city resources towards the neighborhood and Those resources went towards increased cleaning operations, increased outreach on the street to people who were using drugs and who are homeless. And one of the most significant things that happened is that the city created what they called a linkage center, which was supposed to be kind of a catch-all center where Tenderloin residents could go and get their basic needs met. They could get a hot meal, they could get a shower, and then they could get connected to things like drug rehab or medical services or shelters.
0: Okay, to make sure I understand that the emergency order is ending, but the linkage center is going to stay open.
1: Yeah, I think it's supposed to stay open until at least June, um, and funding for it may continue past that.
0: Okay, and are there results yet at at the linkage center? How many people are getting help?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. The so the linkage center opened just about two months ago, and over the course of its time open. It has seen 15,600 visits overall, and that's just someone walking through the door and being there. And then it has made nearly 1,800 referrals, which is defined as a worker at the center providing information on how to access a service. But when it comes to what the center calls completed linkages, which means that a person walking into the center actually closed the loop, talked to somebody, made a doctor's appointment, got into a shelter, got into rehab... Um, Only about 180 people had a completed linkage and no more than 50 people ever got served through a completed linkage in one week. So I think a lot of folks, including neighborhood advocates and uh, local politicians, have talked about the low number of what they call completed linkages. And different people have different reasons for that. I think the, I talked to Francis Zamora, who's the Department of Emergency Management spokesperson uh, a while back. And he said that, you know, it takes a lot of time to get through to people who are suffering from drug addictions and get them the the help that they really need. A lot of people are reluctant to enter treatment or get shelter occasionally. Um, Other folks have said that it's uh, due to a lack of resources on behalf of the linkage center. So I think what you're seeing overall, though, is that the linkage center is maybe more of a drop-in center, or at least was in its first few months. And it remains to be seen what happens um, as it continues to stay open past this order.
0: Yeah, it is sort of a tragically low number. Obviously, a lot of complicated reasons for that. Mm -hmm. So listeners know the Chronicle has been trying to put reporters inside the linkage center, talk to people, see how it's going. We have not been allowed by the city to do that yet. We will keep trying susie what about this debate over what's happening in the linkage center there is drug use inside that shocked some people and now it's turned into a debate over whether the city should be allowing it
1: the linkage center is allowing drug use at its site and uh, just to clarify that doesn't mean that the linkage center is a safe consumption site in the way that new york city is having its safe consumption sites but it does mean that you can use drugs within the center So that decision has been a bit controversial. You have harm reduction advocates who say that folks who use drugs in the linkage center, if they weren't using them there, they'd be using them a few blocks away. And at least with this, they have easy access to referrals, to rehab, and they have um, a lot of folks on hand if there's an overdose. It's generally a more contained and supervised setting in which to use a drug. But then you have people on the other side who argue that Allowing drug use at the Linkage Center is contributing to this kind of culture of permissiveness that San Francisco has. And they advocate for a more tough love approach in which drug use is not sanctioned. And um, a lot of these people are also the same people who supported Breed's uh, promise to increase police presence and place people in jail if they refused drug treatment, for example.
0: So they believe in a tougher approach?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, you have this dividing line in San Francisco right now of— Everyone really wants to solve the drug crisis, but you have a very strong division as to how people think that can be done. And I think there's this compassionate approach of like, you know, drug addiction is a public health crisis and people are sick and they need medical treatment. They need gentle, compassionate, slow, repeated outreach. And then you have people who say, okay, that's all fine and good. We should do that. But also, you know, these people are contributing to a culture that makes people feel unsafe and they should be shown a more punitive side of the city.
0: So on that note, I mean, what's going on out on the streets? Anybody who who spends a lot of time in the Tenderloin knows that that there is open air drug use. There's open air dealing. It's easy to see. What changes, if any, have there been to drug use and and sales in the Tenderloin?
1: Yeah, so... You know, as a data reporter, my dream would be if we actually had data on the number of, you know, drugs being consumed in the neighborhood that we could track over time. We don't. We have a proxy, though, which are—we have several proxy data sets, which, first of all, you can see the number of drug incidents that police are reporting on a daily, weekly basis. And then you also have data on drugs seized by police— but, you know, police don't record everything. They don't see everything. So um, the data shows during this order that drugs seized and drug incidents both went up during the order. Drugs seized are actually higher than they've been in a while. Uh, drug incidents are kind of volatile over the last couple of years, but they're a bit elevated right now. What's hard to say is whether that's because of increased police presence or actual increased drug activity. Um, I think police would say it's because of increased police presence and increased police focus. But it's really hard to say from the data because we don't really have another way of measuring it.
0: I want to play a little bit of an interview that Chronicle City Hall reporter Mallory Mensch did with police captain Chris Canning. Here's Canning talking about something that happened this week, a deployment of an additional 20 officers to the Tenderloin and how he sees their role there. What is very frustrating, and I hear this time and time again from the community is, you know, it's great when the cops are here, but when they walk around the corner, then the problem is back and nothing changed. And and so I think um, the additional support is gonna be extremely useful. All right, Susie, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more on Fifth and Mission right after this.
1: We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Mission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com/pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app.
0: Welcome back to Fifth Mission. I'm Damian Bolwood joined by Chronicle reporter Susie Nielsen. We're talking about the end of the 90-day emergency declaration in san francisco's tenderloin neighborhood Susie, i want to ask you about something that caused a lot of fire in the beginning mayor breed said it she was criticized by some people uh she was celebrated by others but she said that perhaps people who were using drugs out in the open needed to be arrested if they refused to to move or if they refused help or refused to go to the linkage center did that happen
1: i don't think so you know i don't think I personally haven't heard very much about this. And when you look at the number of people in the San Francisco County Jail, um, I just really quickly looked at the February number versus the December number. So in December, the average daily population of the jail was 859 people. And in February, this February, the average daily population was 839. So clearly there hasn't been like a big swell in jail population. In fact, The jail population has decreased over the course of the emergency order. Additionally, you know, police did make more drug-related arrests during the emergency order in the Tenderloin, but not significantly more to the degree that, you know, you would imagine if police were arresting every drug user that said they didn't want to go into treatment.
0: Is it safe to say that in San Francisco the focus is still on drug sales by the police and by, of course, the district attorney?
1: Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, District Attorney Chesa Boudin has said time and time again, that he's going to focus on higher-level drug dealers. And the SFPD has also made it clear that their focus is primarily on targeting drug sales. And when you look at the police data, most of the descriptions for the crimes that are getting arrested are um, either sales or possession with intent to sell.
0: Here's police captain Chris Canning again, talking about how police focus their efforts in the Tenderloin given the level of open drug use in the neighborhood. We are focusing on the people causing the most harm. We expect our officers to enforce the law. Our priority focus is on violent crimes, people that are selling drugs. Um, And as we engage in that effort and that work and coordinate with our partners, Uh, other crimes that officers observe, I expect them to take an enforcement action that's appropriate. Susie, let's take a little bit of a closer look at some of the other metrics that you're looking at in the Tenderloin. I know you're following them closely. First of all, the big one, overdose deaths. What's happened?
1: So I wish we could say more about this. Um, Unfortunately, the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner only currently has overdose death data through this January. So we don't have February data yet, and we don't have March data yet because March isn't over. But um, that data shows that in January in the Tenderloin, 10 people died of drug overdoses, which is unchanged from the 10 people who died this December. Um, And it was a slight decrease from the 13 killed in the neighborhood the previous January. But um, overall, these drug overdose numbers are, they fluctuate a lot in the neighborhood. But I think it's safe to say that the emergency order did not significantly reduce the number of overdose deaths in the neighborhood.
0: I mean, 10 deaths in one neighborhood in one month, it seems shocking.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so tragic. It's, it's just hard. I mean, I, when walking through the neighborhood, it's like, it's a tragedy seeing all these people who are suffering and knowing that there will be these deaths that happen, um, in a given month. And, I think, you know, they are preventable. It's just how to prevent them. That's the the big question.
0: What about homelessness? I mean, in the Tenderloin, a lot of people camp in the street. There are large encampments. It's a huge problem. What have we seen during the emergency order?
1: Yeah, so on that front, the city has been slightly more successful. So every three months, the city counts the number of encampments in each neighborhood. And in the Tenderloin, the city counted 32 encampments this March And that's a steep drop from the 61 that it recorded last November. But I mean, despite that, it's likely that the emergency order hasn't significantly reduced the problem of homelessness in the Tenderloin. There's an estimated 3,660 people who are unhoused in the district that includes the Tenderloin. And it looks like during the emergency order, um, about 345 people were moved into temporary shelters and about 154 into permanent housing. So it's it's a start, but it's not the numbers that people need. It's It's not the numbers we need to really make a big dent in the unhoused population in the neighborhood.
0: Yeah. And in the past, I mean, sometimes these kinds of things displace people, just push them into other neighborhoods where they may camp, they may come back.
1: Exactly. I mean, I think a lot of encampments when they are swept from certain neighborhoods will pop up in other neighborhoods and these low numbers of people being placed into housing indicate that people who are in these encampments may be getting moved elsewhere
0: what about people in the neighborhood susie i mean what are they saying are they are they feeling like there's been a significant change or do they feel like things are mostly the same
1: i think most residents and business owners that we've talked to have noticed some marginal improvements like some have said that the streets are slightly cleaner and you know Emergency workers are coming by more often to pick up trash on the street, but they feel that the neighborhood hasn't really meaningfully changed. And, you know, I think that makes sense. It's only been three months of this emergency order. And, you know, even the Department of Emergency Management says that they need more time in making significant inroads in a lot of these vulnerable communities. Um, So, yeah, I think for now, the answer is no, not significant change.
0: Susie it does raise the question i mean how much can an emergency order or 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 some of these things like a linkage center accomplish when the conditions in the neighborhood are as they are like you said it's a it's a containment center people are in real trouble in this neighborhood
1: Yeah i mean you have the Tenderloin which is a really economically unequal difficult place to live in a city that's i think the most economically unequal city in the state of California a lot of these problems have been potentially getting worse during the pandemic, but the Tenderloin has been dealing with a lot of these issues for decades. And it's hard to say how a 90-day emergency order that, you know, funneled some resources into the neighborhood, but, you know, expired just today. Uh, It's hard to say how a very short-term emergency order can really significantly reduce a lot of these decades-long very intractable problems.
0: All right, Susie Nielsen, thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks to my guest today. She's Susie Nielsen, a Chronicle reporter. Thanks to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.